Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Our fourth discussion is actually a drink for thought. We're talking with a couple of brewmasters, two people who've won lots of awards for creating some of the best craft beer to come out of Northern California. Steve Dressler just retired as brewmaster of Sierra Nevada Brewing after crafting almost all of its new beers for more than 30 years. He helped turn the Chico-based brewery into a billion-dollar company, and he's the only American brewer to win the International Order of the Hop, a prestigious award of over 600 years old that's given to those who've mastered the cultivation of the noble hop and the agreeable drink we know as beer. Mike Moraz won Home Brewer of the Year Award at the California State Fair just two years after starting brewing as a hobby. Then, just 13 months after opening Moraz Brewing Company in El Dorado Hills, he won two gold medals at the State Fair and is gaining major acclaim for his barrel-aged Belgian ales. Mike's latest achievement? Winning a bronze for his Belgian ale Drinking with Friends at the Great American Beer Festival, considered to be the Super Bowl of beer tasting. To celebrate Oktoberfest, we drink some pints with Mike and Steve at Rafael Delgado Studios. Join us and listen to a great talk about California craft beer with two people who brew it best. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, and we're here for the fourth in our Food for Thought series with the Brewmasters, uh, two people who have really um, I think are considered icons or demigods in the n at least Northern California craft beer scene, if not in the U.S. They've all they've won I think a collective at least 30 medals uh, between these between them on the state, uh, national, maybe even global level. And um, also we have to ask one of them about his medal that he's wearing on his shirt because that is a very distinguished medal. And for those who are not listening. I took a photo of it, I'll put it on our website. So these are two really great guys. Um, and I'm not the one to introduce the panelists. They know themselves better than I do. So I always start with the person on my left and I just go down the row. And I wanted to ask each of you just to introduce yourself, obviously your name, your current role, uh, briefly, because obviously we're gonna go into detail about that. And then always a personal note, I think the the one that I wanted to ask you about is, both of you were at the Great American Beer Festival, which happened last week, and that seems to be the Super Bowl of beer judging in the United States. And one of them just won a medal at the, uh, at the uh, GABF, and the other one judged a lot of them. So I wanted to ask what this experience is like, if it was your first time or, or you know, um, one time out of many, what was notable and distinct about this year? So let's start with the gentleman on my left. Hi, my name is Steve Dressler, and I'm the recently retired brewmaster at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. I retired on June the 1st after 34 and a half years uh, working there. Uh, during that time, I was in charge of brewing, cellaring, quality lab, raw materials, procurement, hop contracting, uh, just, about, just about everything. Um, and it's great to be retired. Uh, I judged at the GABF, uh, got home on Saturday. This is probably getting close to 20 years for me judging. 
but for me this year, what made it particularly special was since um, I'm not affiliated with any brewery, I got to steward. So instead of judging the beers, I got to serve the beers to the judges, which uh, gave some of them a, an awkward moment. Um, is that a step up, serving beer to the judges? Or? Uh, for me, it was. Nobody, long-time stewards have gone into judging, but nobody that's judged has ever gone into stewarding. And it's something that I've wanted to do for well over 10 years. And um, so you're working in the back and you're running the trays of beer, but the fun part was, number one, the, the most passionate people that I've ever met were the stewards. And then as they're working the beers through the competition, you have to sign a confidentiality agreement because all the beers are back there in this room. So if you if you have beers in competition, you're never allowed anywhere near this place, and that's why I wanted to go in there. But they get to sample all the beers of the competition over three days, and they know what they're drinking because they've they've been poured for the competition. So in between, when you have a, a short moment, you can go back to this table, and it's a bottle shop that you could never believe possible in your life. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of beers stretched across this table over the course of the day, and you're free to just pick up whatever you want and have a little pour out of it. So it was a, it was a great time. It was really an honor. Next up. So I'm Mike Moraz from Moraz Brewing Company. Um, I'm not retired. Um, so we've been open for about four and a half years now. Um, for the first two years, I was pretty much the brewer, the brewmaster, the janitor, the cellarman, pretty much did everything. We've since acquired about six employees, so I'm able to help hand off some of the stuff. So I still do most of the day-to-day -day, um, brewmaster work, which is the yeast handling and the dry hopping and all the other stuff that goes along with the work. Um, so I still, obviously, there almost every day. Um, as far as the GABF, we just got back. I would stay a day after to kind of gather my thoughts and kind of judge GABF as kind of the end of the year for us because um, you are judged against your peers at that particular event. Um, and it's it's a pretty big event as far as even on the floor. I don't, I don't judge or seller. Um, I've done that before at other events for the state fair locally here. Um, and that's it's a lot of work. Um, I can only imagine how much work it is for the JBF. I think there was 8,000 beers this year. Pretty close to 8,000 beers. So, Is that a, a record or that's an average? It was uh, 8,300 and change, and I think that was a record. In the IPA category alone, there were over 400 beers. So we were lucky enough to pull um, a bronze medal out of the Belgian-style Lambics and Sours. So we were super excited about that, and that was our, our first JBF medal. Um, we tried third year trying, so not too bad. Uh, Seems so blasé about it, Mike. Uh, yeah, I don't want to be like, I mean, I could jump up and down and be excited. I mean, everybody, it, it's because you're in this room... Can you imagine it's an, it's an auditorium and there's probably 4,000 of your peers, other brewers and other employees and stuff. So you're all, you know, waiting for your category because they, they, it takes about two and a half hours for them to roll through all the categories for the award ceremony. And, um, and, you, and you know, you're sitting on pins and needles for your category to come through and, you know, you didn't win that one. So you're kind of a little bit depressed and then, you know, you get the next chance and then, you know. And then once you hear the name of the beer, your name, and then yeah, I didn't. I don't think I heard anything for five minutes after that. It was just you're pretty excited. I was. It was definitely um, an, an amazing. And and what was the beer that you won it for? Um, it's called Drinking with Friends. 
Um, do you want me to talk about that? Is it on deal? tap right now? No, um, we do, it will be on tap. Um, the variation for a 2007, so we won for a 2016 blend. Um, the 17 will be on tap in about two weeks. So I think the 15th, I don't know the exact date, but um, we'll just say in two weeks, which would be October 15th, something like that. So, and your tap room's up in El Dorado Hills, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I should say, I don't know, it seemed like this year there were a, a lot of uh, brewers in the local area, Auburn, Rockland, um, one in Rancho Cordova. I guess that was as close to Sacramento as it got, but there were a lot of winners. And I always like uh, to say, um, one of the panelists from last year's, we had a big panel on California craft beer at the barn about a year ago today, and one of the panelists on that won a gold, a woman, which it seems to be kind of distinct. Her name is Teresa Sudi from... Crooked Lane in Auburn, and she won a gold for her Doppelbox. So, so kudos to all of you. Congratulations. Um, before we start, I'll just say I obviously have a few questions that I'm going to ask, but there is a mic right, right over here in the corner because then it's your turn to ask questions. I always have a lot, but I'd say about half an hour. I'm going to judge and see how bored you get and then bring you to the mic so you can ask questions. And then also there's a a raffle, those white tickets that you got when you checked in, there's two fantastic prizes connected to the, these breweries that these men work for, so stick around for that. So I've been asking on the podcasts, those many podcasts that we do, I asked uh, each person the first question, what was the most, what was the first memorable beer you've ever had? You know, was it when you were underage and you snuck it out of the liquor store or you climbed El Capitan and you had that beer on top with a view or your first homebrew? What was the first most memorable beer that you, I don't know, maybe set you down the path of beer greatness? Well, my first beer was a Schlitz malt liquor. (laughs) And uh, I didn't really understand the joy of drinking beer when I tried that. How old Um, were you? Probably 19 or 20. Uh, it was. I was working in spas in Calistoga, and it was given to me as a tip. So, uh, but the first uh, when when I started drinking beer, there was a, a brewery that didn't last very long, but a New Albion Brewing Company in Sonoma, and they had started brewing just before Sierra Nevada got going. And when we experienced those beers, uh, that was that was an amazing uh, thing for us. Um, and then transitioning from that point. Uh, to Sierra Nevada, um, they were they were very close uh, in they were very similar in their style designs. So um, I would have to say the beers from New Albion. Steve, I got a question for you. So I had that beer that Samuel Adams recreated. Mm-hmm. Did you have that one from Samuel Adams? I didn't get to. You know, I was serving beer at a, a rare beer festival in, in association with GABF a few years ago. It's a it's a fundraiser, Pints, Pints for Prostates. And they uh, they unveiled it at that, and by the time I got over there, it was gone. So I never really got to try it. What was it? They re- rec- recreated a new Albion beer. Yes, uh, Jack McAuliffe, who had started that brewery, um, and we ended up doing a collaboration with him years later. Um, he, I believe, and I don't want to misspeak here. I think he sold the rights for a new Albion and that recipe to Sam Adams so that they could recreate it. But I've never got to taste it. Yeah, I was wondering, because it was similar to your pale ale. It had a lot of Cascade hops, which I think... Yeah, a lot of Cascades, yeah. and it was bottle-conditioned yeah. and yeah. very similar. It was a very good beer. I was just curious what you thought of it versus your pale ale. Um, 
So most memorable beer, I can, I mean, obviously I can be a little cheesy and say Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. That's definitely one of my um, first, like, true craft beers that um, I had. Um, and it's always holds something special to me. You know, as underage, which you're not supposed to do, obviously getting beer and sneaking beer out of the dad's fridge or whatever it needs to be, I was always excited when there was pale ale in the fridge. So that's definitely, definitely good. Um, uh, and now that I'm older, um, and I kind of got bored with beer in general, um, just because the craft beer scene hasn't, that we're talking back in early 2000s. Um, started doing wine tasting and kind of getting a little bit different palate for that. Um, but some of the sour beers, um, some of the Belgian ones, and Temptation is probably the beer for me from Russian River that kind of brought me back and showed me what beer really could be. It's, it was, it's a sour blonde ale aged in Chardonnay barrels. So it had this really unique you know, beer character, champagne character, wine Chardonnay character, and the oak barrel. You got all these little nuances from a beer that's like, I didn't realize a beer could be this complex and still be drinkable. So I would have to say Russian River. Yeah, I, I got, obviously you'll see there's a Sierra, a lot of Sierra Nevada in homage to Steve, but I looked for Russian River Brewing because I knew it was being affected by the fire and just found out it's a few blocks away from the Hilton that burned down in Santa Rosa, but at the Bebno, Bebmo near me, they didn't have any Russian River or I didn't look, so I was going to try and put that on there. Um, I think the thing that also connects you two together, I think like many uh, professional brewers is you started as home brewers. And how did you get into homebrewing? What led you to decide, I'm going to try this, Steve? I had some friends in college, and, you know, it was something that we were going to do. You know, we didn't have any money, so it was a cheap way to get beer. Um, homebrewing today versus homebrewing in 1980 uh, are markedly different worlds. There was, no, there was no real equipment. There were very limited ingredients. Uh, the only yeast you could get was uh, dried in a package, uh, kind of like Fleischmann's. Uh, generally came contaminated uh, with bacteria or different yeast strains. Um, there just wasn't anything. The hops were just disgusting looking. Um, what, year, what, what time frame did you start? 1979, 1980. Yeah, and I started my professional career in 1983. And I have not homebrewed since. <laughs> Are you going to start it up again? Uh, no. <laughs> um... I started 12 years ago, um, homebrewing. Uh, what got me into it? I, I had a friend that homebrewed, um, and he, he made pretty good beer. It was pretty, really nice beer. But as a beer consumer, I thought it was black magic. I, there's no way you're going to make this quality, which is the pale ale or some of the Belgian styles, um, at home. There's just no way. Uh, but once I learned the process and kind of understood what needed to be done, um, it kind of sparked something in me, and I wanted to know where all those flavors came from at that point. Uh, it was like, okay, how's that malt structure work? You know, how's that hop character work? You know, how much is the yeast imparting in the beer? So um, I was pretty avid home brewer. So within two years, I was the home brewer of the year for the state of California, 2008, 2009, um, multiple, multiple state awards throughout this state so yeah because yeah, you started homebrewing and you got the the first gold medal how like a two years after you started or not three years not too long after you yeah uh, seemed pretty quick yeah I brewed a lot I brewed had a pretty much a schedule and I, I I loved it it was it wasn't you know some people do it for you know because they want cheap beer or they want something but I wanted to know 
how it was made and why it was made. Um, so it was an education process for me. So and having that knowledge still helps me today. So I can't do those fun little projects that I do. We still do them on a smaller scale at the brewery, you know, you know, the test batches and stuff like that, but not as much. But um, the foundation was definitely really helpful. And I'll ask, I'm going to ask you first the question, how you moved from home brewing to professional. Like what, what made you decide? Was it the gold medals that made you think, you know, I'm going to quit my day job and do this. I, I think I can do it for a living. Or how did you decide, all right, full time? Um, that's a good question. Uh, let's see. When did I decide that I wanted to, do, to go full time and make beer for the rest of my life? Um, as far as, you know, as I was, I didn't, the brewers, there's not a lot of money as being the brewer, so I wanted to be an owner of it. Um, so that was logistically, and we can talk about that later, but just trying to find the funding and how, how that works. Um, so I did. I kind of held off for a while. I think I'm, I'm just going to use this kind of be a passionate hobby for me, uh, and we're because it just the money just wasn't really there, and I have kids and a wife and all that other stuff that went along with that. So I had to support them. Um, but as time went on. Uh, there was a few breweries that started open. Lumen Basin um, over in um, Lincoln opened up. Uh, uh, Track 7 just opened up. This is back a few years ago. And, you know, I went to those places and I go, I can do this. We can cobble some stuff together um, and I can do this and I can own it and not have to borrow any money. And so that kind of sparked once there was a few breweries around the area that kind of did the same thing on the same scale. That's kind of gave me the idea. And then with with you, Steve, I um, I wanted to ask when when you were made head brewer, like well, I guess you started at Sierra Nevada and you started uh, part time, and then how did you work your way to head brewer? How did that come about? Well, I started working part time on the packaging line, hand packing cases. Um, I was in between jobs, and they were looking for some part time work, and they were offering to pay four dollars an hour under the table, and that worked out fine for me, and. Um, so I started later on in the year, I think this was in January of 83, and so going into the spring, I picked up more hours and then got a chance to get into the brew house in April. And then I think there were five of us at the brewery at the time, and as we started to differentiate a little bit going into 84, um, 85, um, I had the best scientific uh, education. I have degrees in biology and chemistry, and I was running a lot of the work through the quality lab, and so it just kind of worked in that direction. One of the other brewers at the time, we kind of did everything, you know, so you would, you would brew some days, and you would work on the packaging line some days, and you'd work in the lab some days, and so everybody worked around. But as we became a little bit more specialized, one of the brewers, uh, did the packaging because he had some mechanical aptitude that I did not have, do not have. And um, so it just kind of evolved in that direction. So I probably got my title sometime between 84 and 85. How did, how did you feel? Was that, were you scared or you're like, I'm ready for this or? No, I wasn't <laughs> scared. I mean, we were doing it. Um, and no, it was it, it was interesting in that work environment to actually be titled, you know, because uh, we took what we did very seriously, but we didn't really take ourselves very seriously at all. And um, <clears throat> it was just a group of very passionate people doing something on the 
cutting edge. You know, there weren't, uh, there, there was no craft industry really at that time. And so uh, we were really on the forefront of what was going on. And so it was just a matter of hopefully making a living and making good beer while you were doing it. Um, so no, that was, no. We never, we never thought about it in that way. And so for research, I, I read uh, the book Beyond the Pale by Ken Grossman, who runs, who started and runs Sierra Nevada Brewery. And um, I was, I was, I, I'm the person that I drink beer and I appreciate it, but I don't know what goes on behind it. So reading this book was really an eye opener in terms of what is involved from starting a brewery from the ground up. And uh, I just, I, and, and what's in a beer. So what was interesting to me was, besides just how he got it all started on, on no budget, was he had, a, he had a, a little mini chapter, it seems like, on each of the four main ingredients in beer, water, hops, malts, and yeast. So I learned a lot about those and how he chose those ingredients and made sure they were quality. And so I was just curious for you, um, you know, without going too much into the weeds, water, malt, hops, and yeast, how do you pick those quality ingredients? I mean, are there, uh, I guess, especially with hops, everyone knows that uh, that hops, there's the, there's the cascade, and the, I hear about citra. So what are those four ingredients, uh, can you tell us, that you really focused on, um, or you picked these particular hops because they worked better or other you know does that make sense just the ingredients no, it that makes you put very much sense uh, water is of course uh critical to making beer and uh, the water chemistry is is critical for different styles and how you perceive bitterness and mouthfeel and all that stuff uh in the 80s um you you bought what you could um there wasn't a lot of selection. Nobody was importing uh, the huge variety of European and English malts that you can get now. Those didn't exist. Um, there was one uh, white malt or pale malt company uh, in California, and that's the only one that we could source. Uh, there was one uh, malster in Wisconsin that actually did dark roast malts and caramel malts for making porters and stouts and amber-colored beers. Um, there weren't a lot of hop varieties to choose from. Cascade was the very first U.S. bred uh, aroma hop. Uh, came out of the Oregon University in Corvallis uh, program in the late 1970s. Um, almost faded away, almost was eradicated, not eradicated, but almost lost uh, its purchase uh, in 1985. It almost went away. With uh, Some of the large breweries were in and out of that variety, and when they pulled out of it in 85, they were going to take out all the the, uh, the acreage, and that's when I started contracting for it, so that I could ensure a point of purchase. But now there's so many things that you can look at flavors and aromas and with malts and whatnot, and that's part of, you know, I would say the water is a lot of the science part of brewing. Hops and malts are a lot of the art form of brewing, and so it's like if you want to cook or you want to make art, you know, you look at you look at the things available and you put something together in your head and then you try to make that become something physical. So it's, uh, you know, uh, you rub hops and you envision what they would taste or smell like with these different malt combinations and things of that nature. What about you, Mike? What ingredients do you really focus on or have just, like, I want this but not that or the best of this? 
it's a little different nowadays. Um, it can be the act, exact opposite. It's overwhelming of what you can get. So you, there's, I mean, with the modern transportation and the maltsters and the hot varieties, that there's so many um, different ingredients and good ingredients. It's you're not just having to pick from a few different, um, you know, nice ones, and the rest of them aren't that great. Um, so that's another thing is you got to understand what you're using. You can't just throw everything in there and expect it to be good. Even some of the new hot varieties like Citra and, and those ones, um, they do make amazing beers, but you still have to understand the process of how to make the beer and um, what goes in it. Um, and you know, like the recipe formulations, it's almost like writing music or speaking a language. They're just things that you do. And people will ask me, well, how can you put this in there? It's like, well, that's for mouthfeel or that's for balance. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's easy for, you know, most of the brewers to create a recipe for a certain beer. If I can say, hey, just make me an amber recipe. I bet you can pull one out in 30 seconds and this, 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 this. And then you can kind of tweak it um, for, but most of the brewers out there, if you want to make a beer, you're probably about 98% there. If as long as the sanitation's right and the water profile and all those things go, you know, you'll tweak it a little bit because of um, different uh, lots, which I call, because we'll just go back to Citra. You, I can order Citra one year and it's going to be different the next year. We still deal with organic products and grains the same way. So we, it's, it's a chasing the tail, just trying to repeat the exact beer every time. Um, and luckily for us, we're a small brewery and we do make quite a few different varieties. Um, we probably have four core beers that we kind of rotate through that we do continuously make. Um, so, but we don't have to package it as well as um, some of the bigger breweries that have to sit on stable shelves. Most of our stuff goes into kegs and it's consumed within a couple of weeks. So those are different areas of how stuff's done. And I want to ask you too, because it feels like you are known for barrel aging beers and, and the fruit that you put in the beer in Belgian style, that seems to be if not your focus, at least something that you're really well known for. So I was just curious about how you decided to go into that and any interesting things about, you know, picking particular types of wood or barrels of fruits that you have uh, learned about since you've been started. Those styles of beers um, definitely keep the brewing is interesting. I'll, I'll give it that. It's we're not making, you know, like I said, back to the four core beers. Um, uh, making the sours and the Belgians uh, give me... I, I, definitely inspiration, uh, the wine palette that I have and understanding about balance and flavor profiles. I'm a big foodie. So matching the beverage with food makes a big deal for me because I can make the most sour beer. I can make the most bitter beer, but that doesn't necessarily transfer over to sitting at the dinner table and enjoying the product. So most of the beers that we do make as far as the Belgians and the sours are, I think about what's going to be, what can I eat with it and how does it work? Um, and that's kind of one of the thought processes of designing some of those beers and the barrel aging stuff definitely takes, um, more of that winemakers idea about blending and time. It's not just about making beer and then, you know, packaging it and sending it on the way. There's definitely a time aspect to that too, which is a different totally different than most of the other beers we make. I was going to uh, start seeing if anyone else has questions. There's the mic. I've got a, a few, but uh, I always, well, sometimes it's either people immediately flung to the microphone or they don't, and I have to entice them with 
The first person who asks a question gets a free beer on me. So if you are, okay, well, but no, just think about questions you have because I've got a bunch, but I always like to, I feel like whenever we have a panel and people come up to the mic, they ask a great question that I was like, wow, I wish I had asked that. So, um, so please feel free. Okay, Raphael has a question. Uh, you guys are talking like artists. I mean, obviously there's a lot of art and uh, like, you know, tricks of the trade. How secretive are the processes? I mean, do you share openly? How are you making something or? I would say yes. I think one of the very unique things in my experience in the craft uh, beer industry is the openness that people are willing to give their information. Um, it is a lot like art and uh, it, you know, 34 years, I've had an opportunity to discuss things and help hopefully uh, a lot of brewers as they've started up. And to me, um, and I think Mike would agree with this, uh, you know, you, you, I don't want to make your beer, you want to make your own beer. And so if we, if we help each other out from information or maybe with, uh, I've helped people with raw materials purchases or given them advice on different techniques or micro biological problems and they they don't want to make Sierra Nevada pale ale they want if they're making a pale ale they want to make their own pale ale so I mean I don't want to copy your painting I want I want to make my own I might get inspiration from your painting but I definitely want to have my own fingerprint on my work Mike I'll agree with that there's you kind of nobody wants to be a copycat and it doesn't necessarily we want to be inspired and we want to do what we love to do and that includes making our own product it just you can probably give tell me exactly which colors you used on that painting and i can tell you exactly what malts and hops i used in it but it's not going to be the same so even if just the systems and the house profiles or in the water profiles that mean so much it's going to make a different product just like it's going to make a different painting That's an excellent question, and it seems like uh, from what I've read and what I see, people are very collaborative, uh, obviously the partnerships, which I have a question about, but also I guess when you're starting up at Sierra Nevada, you got a lot of help, and, and maybe you did too. So uh, in, your, in the area that you work in, uh, is it less competition and more collaboration with the brewers around you, um, or is there a balance? Just curious well, about that. For Sierra Nevada, we're pretty isolated in Chico because we're the only uh, one in town. But um, I know there's, with all the breweries in Sacramento and the Sacramento Brewers Guild, uh, same in San Francisco with their guild, there's a very open level of communication and collaboration with people. Uh, people like to make beers together, because then they, we can drink them together. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very unique. I don't think there's any really, uh, any industry like it. You know, if you get into the large, uh, more industrial breweries, they're highly secretive. Uh, within their techniques and their processes, and um, it's just a it's just a different thing within the craft. Uh, you know, when we first started in the '80s and '90s, you know, everybody was struggling, uh, and so it was it was very open. You know, trying to help each other out, and uh, and the main goal was to ensure that every made, everybody made a good quality beer. And it's the same now because the last thing you want is for someone to buy a craft beer or a beer of a specific style and get a bad one 
a, a badly constructed beer or an infected beer, and then all of a sudden announce that um, I don't like pale ales or I don't like sour beers because they got a flawed one. So that's that's critical. And whether there were 30 breweries, like when I started in the entire country, or 6,000 like they are now or whatever, that's still the main goal is to always put out a quality beer for the consumer. Mike, what about you here in Sacramento? Um, yeah, there's quite a few breweries in Sacramento. And it's still open. We're trading ingredients. It's like, you know, I'm short a malt or I need hops. Does anybody have it? So it's definitely open on that. Um, even when the new people start, you know, they'll ask questions. Like, well, you know, even like certain equipment purchases and things like that will definitely help them along the way. Um, it's a, it's a, but it's also a give and take. You can't just come with your check sheet and, and I'm not going to give you every single answer that you want. So you because you not necessarily that you don't want to give those answers, but you ha there's a learning process to go and it has to go um, both ways in, in helping each other out. So and you want to make sure that they learn what they need to learn and make their own product, not necessarily just copies other breweries around. But I've collaborated with you know a few breweries in the area and a few outside. Um, I have friends throughout the country, and you know those are fun because I'm still learning. I'll be the first to admit that when I go to a new brewery, it's like, oh, why are you doing you know why are you doing it that way? And it's like and they'll give me an explanation. It's like, oh, that makes sense. And then I can take that process back to my brewery and improve what I'm doing and how I do things because you know we always look at the way we're doing stuff, and our breweries are built a certain way, and that's just the way we do them. But if we can add new processes and new ideas. You know, we always want to make the beer better. Next question at the mic. Yeah, you were talking a little bit, of Mike, I think about um, how the beer varies year to year. And I was wondering about the environmental impact. So, I mean, we were just talking about fires in Sonoma and Napa. We just came through a five-year extreme drought. Had, did you see, and the water quality is changing from the changes in that. I was, I was wondering if you guys had any experience having to deal with that. So we'll talk about the water. Um, and... I have an open communication with our water district and I always ask because I was worried about Lake Folsom was down to 17%. We're above Lake Folsom, so I don't. We, that wasn't our issue because we pull from Sly Park and a few other Eldorado water district. Um, but our water is pretty consistent. It's always been, and that's one of the reasons why we are where we are because I, I love our water profile. Um, but, you know, there's always concerns, even with the modern transportation and stuff. Each hot varieties, there's, you'll hear there's certain ones that just don't do good certain years because of environmental conditions. Um, they've gotten better. Um, it's just the way it is, and you kind of have to make the adjustments. Water can be stripped down to nothing and built back up. So we can literally make any water profile around the world we ever wanted to do. We don't do that at our place. Um, we'd like to use the water that comes out of the tap and we filter it and add a few small adjustments for different styles of beer but not too much so overall you know you kind of i'm gonna say it's that farmhouse mentality of using the ingredients that are at your disposal and not changing them too much and we, we kind of like that mentality i had a question that ties into that actually about the pros and cons of brewing in california because San Diego and Sacramento and San Francisco, the Sonoma Napa, it seems like there's so much good beer coming out of California. So maybe we have it good in terms of the environment, but we might also have some cons. I think I read something in somewhere about how, you know, earthquake proofing the facilities is something that we have to do here 
that many other states may not. So I was wondering, based on your experience of brewing in California, what are the upsides, what are the challenges of being a brewmaster in the state? Well, the upside is definitely ease of transportation. Um, you know, most, other than the water that you use, most of the raw materials that you brew with are not grown in California anymore. They don't grow much barley in northeastern California anymore that I'm aware of. And the hop industry, of course, all moved north. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, I would say one of the benefits is uh, a good year-round climate for beer drinking. Um, you know, that would, that would be a positive. Um, you know, the, there's some construction issues, you know, with Sierra Nevada being large and with large tank sizes, we had to do some additional engineering uh, for earthquakes. Uh, but one of the nice things about uh, California, though, as we uh, expanded, uh, was they were very, very, we got very favorable energy credits. And so, uh, Sierra Nevada, and I don't know how many people have ever been there, but there are times in the summer when that brewery is off the grid because of the amount of uh, solar, and uh, we had hydrogen fuel cells, which we just upgraded before I retired to uh, some turbine types. And the, the credits uh, for those within the state are fantastic, and so they really encourage you to take the green, the green side of things. Uh, when we did our brewery in North Carolina, there, it's just different. So there was, we still did. We got, uh, we're the first brewery in the United States to get platinum lead certification for environmental. That was an incredibly expensive and, and hard to do. For the one in North Carolina? Yes, yes. I think the only other brewery in the world that has that certification is uh, Guinness in Ireland. And um, so, you know, that, I never really dealt a lot on the financial end, so I can't really speak to the taxation type issues. Uh, with uh, with alcohol in California, but uh, I know from a fact our sustainability program in Chico would not have been as successful as it was without uh, the, some really good state government incentives. What about you, Mike? Anything that you noticed um, since you started your business? Maybe you hear from other brewers in other states, then you think, oh, I've got it so good, or oh, they don't have to deal with the stuff that I have to do. I'm just curious about that. Because it comes up a lot in these food for thought, at least on the restaurant operating side. There's some benefits to um, doing what we do in California, but then again, on the, maybe on the business side, it's it can be challenging, So or health codes, or environmental. So just curious about that. Yeah, there's, I mean, California, the blessing is there's a lot of people in California, and the downside is there's a lot of people in California. Um, and with all those people are regulations to make sure everything's done properly. Um, so any opening any small business or large business, even, you know, I don't, I don't understand how large businesses even open <laughs> just because of logistics. So, but I've opened, I, you know, when I was younger, I worked with my dad in an automotive industry and we had a small shop. And so I understood small business as, you know, a young person. So that helped me as we opened the brewery to understand what needs to be done. And, you know, dealing with the city and the county on opening the brewery is definitely challenging, but, you know, they always put, they say, they're going to put hoops in front of you and just jump through the hoops and you'll get through it. Because it is overwhelming trying to get something open, especially when, um, you know, city asks for certain regulations and has to do with earthquake regulations on some of the equipment or whatever else it needs to be. But I wouldn't say it's difficult. One of the blessings for California is we do have the California Craft Brewers Association, um, and there's a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of help. 
Uh, we have um, a mature alcohol industry with ABC in California, which a lot of the states don't. And we are pretty favorable for craft breweries um, for self-distribution, distribution, and all those things that go along with that. So we are probably on the forefront as far as the United States. And there's a lot of other states that are looking to us. Um, so that's the bonus that we have such a pro craft brewery industry in California. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many. I feel like you all should have more beer because, well, either not to fall asleep, but so you can go and ask more questions. You guys have to have questions. I can't have them all. Yay, Jessica. I think uh, we have two people who drove the farthest besides mine from El Dorado Hills, uh, from Grass Valley, and one of them is going to step up to the mic and ask. So Yeah. So we're from Grass Valley, but we also both went to Chico State, so we're familiar with um, Sierra Nevada, and really for you, but two questions, just um, one, how much has that brewery changed since the 80s? Because it's huge now, and um, I've been going to Chico since the 80s when I was little. Um, my grandparents are from there, and I don't remember the whole hops thing. I remember the hops coming in like the 2000s early. So growing your own hops, how did that come about and how has it changed? And two, for both of you, what's the best keg beer coming from Chico State? You know, <laughs> what's the best beer that you've had in a keg? Steve, why don't you start? So the, how has the brewery changed since uh, the early 80s? Well, when I started working there, it was housed in a in an old uh, transmission shop on a street that was called Gilman Way that was not paved at the time. It's now South Martin Luther King Way, I think. And uh, we moved from there in 88, 89 to 20th Street and then did a further expansion there in 1997. That was the last expansion. Well, the brew house expansion. Then we did some more tanks that you see when you drive by. Um, the hop field, uh, we put in yeah, about 10, 12 years ago, uh, we had wanted to do an estate beer. And so the idea was to grow all of the raw materials on brewery-owned property. So we have a rail spur um, out off of Hagen Lane, which means nothing to anybody except perhaps you. Um, and so we put in some barley acreage there, and then we put in a hop field by the pub and by the brewery. We have a second field as well. Um, and it was for very, very limited. Um, the amount of hops that we would get off that field in a production day, it would not last me a production day. Um, so uh, there, there was very low yield. They were organic, and it's very difficult to grow uh, hops, uh, particularly organically in that environment. So we would get enough just to make this one special batch of beer yearly. Uh, four or five hundred barrels, perhaps. Uh, but it was fun. You know, people don't really know what hops look like. But uh, no, the, the the brewery over the 34 years that I was there went through a lot of evolution, as you can imagine any any company. Uh, when I started working there, we had five employees. And when I walked out the door, I think we had with sales staff and event people something like a thousand. So... Oh, pale ale. <laughs> I think I read somewhere you called it the best beer on the planet. Is that still true? 
it's my go-to beer. Yeah, I really love the beer. Uh, I think it's, uh, I like pale ales as a style. Uh, it's my go-to beer at home. But uh, since I've been retired, even before then, but as my wife and I have been traveling quite a bit uh, through the U.S. Um, the last couple, three months, uh, there are so many great beers out there, small breweries and at local communities. And so we've been really enjoying those. Um, and uh, it's great stuff, you know, judging at the GABF and particularly when I knew what I was able to drink backstage. Uh, there's just an incredible, incredible selection of beers in this country. And um, it's been really a lot of fun checking them out. Favorite keg, be favorite keg beer for you, Mike? Uh, I don't know if I have one particular one. I'd probably say any fresh IPA. You know, which one? Any fresh IPA. Any fresh. Yeah, any fresh IPA that you can get. Um, the fresher, the better. You know, those beers do tend to drop off after a couple of weeks, but it's always I'll go into a, a tap room and ask which is the freshest beer you got. And so, next question. Hello. Hello. Um, so I think the really cool thing is like all all these different breweries and stuff popping up, and I love tasting all these different you know, craft beers and microbreweries, you know, what they have. Um, but I'll also still get down on like some Bud Light and some Corona and stuff. Um, but I've been running into like lately, just a lot of like beer snobs were like, oh, I'd rather drink water. It's like, you know, even Sierra Nevada is just, I want some real craft beer, you know, and they're saying all these names that I haven't even heard of. I'm like, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm st I'll still drink some beer. Um, I'm wondering if you guys ever like ran into like these really snobby beer snob kinds of people um, and, you know, your experiences with, like, these people that think they know all this stuff where you guys are, like, super experienced. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, early in my career, one of the things that really used to frustrate me was um, particularly, you know, people that thought they knew everything about beer and craft beer and that's all they could have and all they would do is they would denigrate uh, the large breweries, and particularly Anheuser-Busch. And uh, Anheuser-Busch back in the day probably had the highest quality standards front to back of any brewery on the planet, uh, both in their raw materials, their sanitation, their adherence to quality, everything, and everybody just said, oh, it's Budweiser. Well, you know what? That's the beer they wanted to make. That's the flavor profile that people bought, and they only sell about half the beers in the country. And, you know, you don't, you might not like it, you know, if you don't like it, don't buy it. You know, don't, you don't, I've never spoken poorly about anybody else's beer, you know, uh, publicly. And, <laughs> but what, what I will speak to is not adhering to quality standards and putting out something that's subpar. You know, there are so many styles out there now, and I, there are some that I just don't gravitate to. That's okay. You know, there again, going back to uh, uh, art, you know, there's a lot of styles of art that people just don't enjoy. I mean, so you don't, don't, don't go there, you know, but to be, yeah, to get your nose up in the air and, and speak poorly uh, of somebody else's work is just, uh, it's just not proper. Mike. Yeah, there's spirit snobs out there. Um, and there's food snobs and wine snobs and just goes around with anything that's, um, you can can't put a particular idea on something. Um, it's it's a judge kind of flavor profile, so you're gonna get that no matter what, um, and that's just the way it the way it is. Um, 
I don't know what to say other than that. <laughs> and then yes, um, and we—I mean, everybody deals them. There's negative reviews on some of the beers that everybody makes that that you agree or disagree. And and you know, if you want to drink Bud Light or Corona, and usually when I'm on a beach in Catalina, I'll have a Corona. <laughs> it's like I'm on the beach. I mean, I always say that Corona did an amazing job. The beer's not that great. I'll say it publicly. Um, <laughs> But they've done a really amazing job at putting a beach in a bottle. There's something about opening Corona, like you're not having a bad, you're having an okay day or whatever, and you open that thing, it's like, hey, it takes me to the beach. It's not, so, you know, they've done a good job. So if you want to have a Corona or a Bud Light or a Pale Ale or an IPA or a Sour, and you love all those, that's fine. Drink what you, there's plenty of beer out there. Drink what you like. Then don't listen to anybody else. And uh, so I, yeah, that ties into a good question I had uh, about, you know, quality versus expansion. So uh, you mentioned the the state of the art brewery that North Carolina built, or that you built in North Carolina. Excuse me, the beer is getting to me. That pale ale is really strong. Um, but obviously, you you sell your beer all over the place. So that is your East Coast facility. But how do you, I guess in your position as brewmaster, working with the team, make sure you keep the quality as you expand production? Were there some things that you said, we, we got to keep these in place or, or you know, we got to try these out? I truly feel that Sierra Nevada's success uh, is, is attributed to it. It's an adherence to quality standards from day one. Um, when I started in 83, we had a lab uh, that was very difficult. There, You know, there again, there's... There wasn't there 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 wasn't equipment options back then. I remember when we bought a, a microscope, uh, which was a huge cost for us at the time. But we always ran our plating. We always did tubes. Uh, we had an incubator uh, that when I started, that was just basically a box, uh, an insulated box with a light bulb and a thermostat in it. But we we did everything. We every batch of beer that we ever put out. Uh, we knew uh, the microbiological quality of that beer. And if it didn't meet standards, it, it was thrown away. Uh, now we send it off either, a lot of times for distillation, but we, you know, we throw beer away. And if you make, if you're making beer and, you know, the, you don't sell it, you don't package it and sell it to the public if it doesn't meet your standards. And so we've always had a quality lab. We have a very nice packaging lab where we look at all aspects of the package, you know, the, the crimp on the crown, the straightness of the label, fill heights, all that stuff, carbonation levels, um, yeast management. Um, we have a state-of-the-art, Sierra Nevada has a state-of-the-art R&D lab, gas chromatography. Uh, you, we could do anything there. And in your role as brewmaster, Head brewmaster, you worked with all these labs. Yes, uh, I worked. Awesome. I Sounds worked fun. integrally with all the labs and basically with all production departments. And so you were Willy Wonka, pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, without the hat. <laughs> and I had a question for you because I think I read yeah. uh, last year uh, you were going to expand into Folsom and you decided to call it off. Correct. And I, yeah. why is that? What What's your What's your philosophy on on quality versus or with expansion, did that tie into did that tie into that? Uh, yeah, it did actually. Um, so we're a small brewery. We do about a thousand barrels a year. We're just shy of that this year. How, how many barrels did you guys do? You're close to that, right? Uh, yeah, we did a million one at yeah. one point. So, yeah, 
So we're not super small and we're not super big. We're just kind of, and that's about, I'd say about 90% of the breweries do about a thousand barrels a year. So, uh, and we had an opportunity to move into Folsom. Um, you know, they're trying to expand. Um, Folsom is, is a area and I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, we looked really hard at that and, you know, did some architect stuff and, and some engineering to see if we can fit into that particular building. But I also realized being as small as we are, it pulled away my mind frame from the beer. And um, I thought the beer was starting to suffer. And then, uh, you know, it's like, it's, for me, the brewery is not about the money. I'm not trying to make this huge brewery so we can sell it and sit on the beach and drink Coronas. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I like what I do and I'm happy with where we're at. And, you know, the lights are on and the bills are paid. So I kind of took a step back and said, realized, why am I doing this? What, do I want to open another facility and, and and spend all that time and energy and on human resources and contractors and and even with a restaurant you're dealing with people that don't necessarily love beer. I have a staff of you know the five or six people we have. We're we're pretty much a family. You know we're all passionate about beer. We enjoy the product. We you know we do sensory panels. Is you know even as small as we are, we'll sit around taste the beer and making sure it's good to go and make sure it's you know it deserves to go out to the public and if it doesn't we we dump it with it's not an easy thing to do but you know you have to do that to hold your standards every beer that you put out in somebody's hand is a calling card and if you can't if you're not happy about that card you shouldn't give it out you know so Folsom was a great opportunity and a great idea but in the end I don't want to be a large production restaurant brew pub you know, I want to be that small brewery that does the sours and the barrel aging, and uh, I enjoy that. And I don't want to be pulled away from that. So I didn't didn't want to deal with HR. To, so I want to deal with beer. You know, speaking just real quickly to the East Coast facility, the main reason we did that was for transportation costs. And when you look at adherence to quality standards, and that point about the beer being your quality or a, a calling card. Uh, we ship refrigerated, or Sierra Nevada shipped refrigerated, and in the summer months, it would cost anywhere from 4 to $5 per case, per case to ship uh, beer into the Southeast refrigerated. And people don't do that. But it was the best way for us to ensure that if you're living on the eastern seaboard, that when you bought a pale ale, it was as close in flavor and quality as to what I'm drinking. Next question. Um, so I was born and raised in Chico, so I had the opportunity to watch Sierra Nevada grow into what it is now, which is amazing. Um, but I was wondering how or if your brew style had evolved or changed as the, as the brewery had grown, or if different things became more important. Or Well, definitely the diversification of styles. You know, um, when I started, we made five different beers. Um, Pale Ale, Porter Stout, Bigfoot, and Celebration Ale. And then over, over the years, we got into lager production, but then we would have a big production increase, and lagers take longer in fermenters, so you can't make as much of them and tie up your infrastructure. Um, when you get around to about 2000, uh, and the last seven to 10 years, I think, couple years ago between the two facilities we brewed 180 different beers uh, because now we have small 
pub brewing facilities. So you can crank stuff out. Uh, Beer Camp Beers, which is a program that we do brewing beers with uh, people from the outside outside of the company. Uh, so diversification of style. The, the last number of years in my career there, that was probably a, a high point. You know, getting into Belgian styles. Uh, doing uh, barrel-aged beers, you know, playing around with different yeasts and all kinds of stuff. We were, we were very limited on our ability to do that uh, for years and years because it was just meeting production demand. You know, and going back to your comment, downsize of growth and getting to be that um, that size. Yeah, yes, perhaps so, but also it was the backbone of a very, very successful brewing company. So, both. And I I wanted to ask about collaborations uh, to date with another partner, a brewery or a monastery. I wanted to ask what's your most notable uh, collaboration to date in terms of, I don't know, quality of beer or just, you know, a totally different partner that you teamed up with or well yeah let's start with you Steve uh, there's just so many um, I've done some great collaborations we did a great one with uh, Vinny at uh, and Natalie at Russian River I did some collaborations with my good friends at Boulevard in Kansas City we did collaborations with Sam Calgione at Dogfish uh, the Ovila collaboration with uh, Abbey of New Clairvaux uh, Cistercian Monastery north of Chico in the little town of Vina. That's uh, the one I really wanted to ask about because it was it yeah. was mentioned in uh, the book that Ken Grossman yes. wrote. And, it just and I got a really trip to Belgium to out of it. So that I really like really that fun. one as well. Yeah. Um, no, they, uh, they were putting together this uh, uh, 15th century uh, mod, uh, chapter house and they were looking for fundraising. Uh, and so they approached Ken to see if they could get donations. And uh, we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to do some Belgian-style beers, uh, our Vila brand, family brand, and then we would donate uh, the proceeds from that beer sales to them for this project. Um, and that was, that's one of my favorites because it really got me personally and professionally into making some beers that I knew nothing about. They were using different yeasts that I'd never experienced, uh, different raw materials, um, and some some beers that ended up being some of my truly favorites. Uh, plus, incredible uh, people to work with. We spent almost two weeks traveling around in Belgium with Father Thomas, who was the ex-head uh, of this, uh, this monastery. Uh, he's a lovely gentleman. He's probably close to 80. And, you know, driving around in a car with uh, four or five brewers, you know, he hung pretty well. Um, <laughs> and uh, he also got us behind the scenes in uh, the monastic breweries. Uh, you know, when you sit in the office of, of the head abbot um, at Chimay and do a private tasting from his reserve beers, it doesn't get much better than that. And so uh, we traveled around together. But that's that's definitely one of my favorites. Are those still available for purchase? These Very limited. Okay. Uh, we did uh, we did in Ovila. We did one brand in um, one and in 2017, I think, at the beginning of the year. What about you, Mike? Any favorite collaboration or notable one? Um, 
they're all like they're all teaching and learning experiences. I don't know if there's. I didn't get to go to Belgium and and drink with the monks. So have, no, have you gone to Belgium? Because you do have no, a Belgium. Oh. I I do. That's kind of on the list. Um, I in the next few years, now that we have a few more employees and more other brewers that can hand off some of the work, um, I will be able to do that. I think just this year is the first really vacation I did after beer week. I went, to, I got to go to Hawaii. So that was nice to be able to take those five days off and just kind of, not that you're not working because I'm still talking to the employees and stuff. I'm just not there. So that was nice. So um, it's in the works. I do want to go there and, um, and experience Belgium. Yeah, it so. sounds like great R&D. Yeah, yeah definitely. Tax write-off. <laughs> next, next question. Mike. I've heard you mention sours a lot. Um, I'm a huge sour lover. I feel like in today's beer world, it's you either love sours or you hate sours. I'm curious how you got into sours and how you would encourage a lot of the beer world to get into them. Um, it, it, the beer people are different than, I don't know. How, I, was, I appreciate beer, wine. Um, I'm not much of a hard alcohol person, so I don't know how that works into it. Uh, back to Russian River from Temptation, that's kind of the one that wasn't... I've had Cantillon, and some of those, Dre Fontaine, it, as a first sour drinker, some of those are pretty intense. There's a lot of strange flavors, um, pretty tart. Um, they can be off-putting. Uh, I think Jay from Rare Barrel in Berkeley said, you know, at least give it three sips. Kind of the first one's, you know, a little assaulting. The second one, you'll get a little flavor. And the third one, by then, your, your palate will be adjusted to the pH, and that kind of helps. Um, I don't force people to like them. We make other beers. Um, just because I love something doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to love something. Uh, and I, I don't want to force somebody into something they don't like. But there's probably a beer for everybody. Uh, most of our sours are on the mellower side that pair, pair well to food. So I tell people, you know, take a bottle home, you know, give you a couple ideas of what to, you know, pasta is always easy. Chicken's always easy. You know, red meat's a little bit heavy on some of them, but you can at least pair it with some food and see how the flavor profile works. It's usually a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to uh, tie into that question. That was a good one about, you know, what you see either, you know, just in your tap room or, you know, R&D in terms of new trends, new flavors, new ingredients that that either you experiment with or you see uh, bubbling up because people want to try them. I think I read somewhere that maybe in an interview with you, uh, Steve, online, um, brewers are testing out, you know, cannabis brews. And maybe that's just for, you know, for fun. But I'm just curious to see in the past few years or since you started or in the past few years since you wound down your career if there's been any notable change in in trends or new flavor well i, I think uh the move into barrel aged and sour beers has really taken off um it's a very niche style um you know it it's it, not a lot of people care for them i like to sip them but to drink a whole one is very difficult for me uh there are a lot more fruit beers out there now than there used to be uh, the ipa craze is just almost hard for me to get my head around uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean, there's just there are just so many IPAs, and it's a great style. I don't, you know, I don't really see that uh, coming to a, an end anytime soon. Um, you know, in my experience, uh, brewers will do anything. Um, you know, they'll put anything into a beer that they possibly can. And as I've spent years judging, um, and I, I'll do some of the wacky categories. I'll do the herb and spice categories or the experimental categories. Um, and I mean, if it's if if it's in the cupboard, they'll put it in a beer. Um, it might not be a very good beer, um, 
but there again, it's it's not for me. Uh, but there are, there are so many more flavors in, in beers now with different herbs and spices and things that people are playing with. Um, so there's I don't brewers uh, do not and should not have blinders. Uh, you know they should be open to anything on the creative front. And so, uh, and, and most of my friends are, and you know, they'll try it, you know, and they're the first to admit that it's awful. Um, but uh, yeah, you should just really go, go with what you, wanna, what you wanna make. Mike. Uh, you mean like pumpkin beer? Is that, yeah. Um, I usually drink IPAs when I'm out, you know, or pale ale. Um, just because they're, you can kind of drink them. They're dry. Let's put the West Coast. We, we obviously with the new hazy IPA, I guess it's called. The, I don't know. It's like an unfiltered IPA. Um, it's got a little bit more residual sugar, so it's a little sweeter, a little more mouthfeel, um, not quite so bitter. Um, so that's kind of the new craze that we're seeing, especially here in Sacramento. Interesting note: I went to GABF, so it's okay. Sacramento's kind of blowing up on this style of beer. It's this unfiltered IPA, and it, they call it Northeast. IPA. So I go to GABF and I, I need to find the northeast section because everything in GABF is in, there's what 800 breweries there and so I go to the northeast section and they're only serving west coast IPAs. There was no northeast <laughs> so, so yeah but it, that was pretty hilarious. Some of the other well-known northeast breweries weren't at GABF pouring so um, but it was funny that I went to that section and they're serving our they beer. They probably didn't want to take the risk of kegging them and shipping them up that long. Yeah, we're serving their beer and they're serving our beer. So that's everybody wants what you can't get. I think that maybe that's it. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, we see those and the sour beers are always going to be a, a niche. Uh, everybody says, you read articles, what's the next new style of beer? And then everybody, somebody says sours, like, well, I've been waiting for 10 years for it to be sours, but I don't drink sours usually when I'm out in, in, but uh, I'll have it just like at home with a glass of wine. I'll have a sour or something else. Uh, they do well with food, and but you're not going to sit down and have two pints of them. They're just too, you know, there's just too much. So that's why the pale ales and IPAs are nice is, you know, when I go out and to the pizza joints or whatever else. But, you know, sitting around sharing a bottle with a friend, um, it's nice to have a sour. Last call for questions. I've got a couple more, but last chance to go to the mic. Oh, Raphael's got one. Corona and other um, kind of like, you know, the idea of beer. How vital is it um, for your brand to, uh, visually? Like, will you buy a beer if the, the, the label is just popping and it looks great? Or because I see Sierra Nevada, one of my favorite like shirts I grew, uh, like growing up was a Sierra Nevada, you know, it was like Bigfoot, you know, or something. So I'm just like the art direction of a beer. Um, how vital is that? Yeah, especially when if you're on the on the shelf with so many other beers. I guess like with wine too, they have to deal with like making their label pop. Yeah, that's interesting. When we first you know had the idea of opening the brewery and you know started thinking about packaging some of the sour beers, I spent hours in the wine section, the beer section too, but just looking at different what catches your eye and what what you know why does that speak to you versus some of the other ones, uh, and. As a, a beer geek, I always liked the labels with some sort of art on them because it didn't end up in the trash. And then you have a, another calling card that's sitting on somebody's shelf. So if it has a nice art on the label, you're more than likely going to save that bottle and set it somewhere because you like what the bottle represents, not necessarily um, just 
you know, I don't know, Corona or, you know, I've talked to a few um, marketing people when we were opening and how to, to further the brand and making sure it, it pops. And it was interesting to talk to them and they'd say, you need all this. And then I'd bring a bottle of Pliny, right? This ugly green and red thing. Exactly. And you're like, you just told me all the things that this doesn't represent, but it's such an iconic label nowadays, at least in California, that you can't mistake it. People have shirts and they've done an amazing job with something simple. So it's, it's difficult. You can have a super amazing art or you can have something just a two color and it works, but you do have to stand out. And it goes along with representing the brand and having that um, persona and culture. Uh, it, especially, you have to stand out at some level, especially even as small as we are in this, this Sacramento. Is You, you kind of want to be known for, obviously we're obviously being known more and more for the, our barrel-aged sours, which is great, but it has to represent the brand that we do make other beers. And, you know, quality is hopefully one of them that we stand for. Uh, when with Sierra Nevada, you're Sierra Nevada. Do you still uh, think about packaging or branding with a new beer? Like how? Do oh I- yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, this label has been around for a very long time, and you know, when I was first uh, working there, and you could walk into uh, a liquor store, beer store, whatever, and you you would immediately focus on that green label. There wasn't anything really like it there. Um, I had lunch a couple of years ago with a guy that was with the marketing with Siebel Institute in Chicago, and they do a lot of beer programs. And uh, he had come back from doing some marketing survey, and I asked him about it. You know, we talked about it. He said, cartoons and color. You know, um, and if you, you know, when you go into one of these big bottle shops now, it's so easy to, it's easy to just get lost in the shuffle, um, unless you have something that's truly iconic, like, Pliny, I mean, which is very simplistic, but it's it's there. But, you know, people do shop with their eyes, you know. And so if you're in a big bottle shop and they have 200 different types of IPAs, there are different brands of IPA, which one? And, you're, and people are always looking for something that they haven't had. So especially where you can mix your own six-pack or you get a big bottle format and take it home and split it with a friend, something is going to have to draw you to it. And generally, it's it's color, the brightness, a figure on it, something that's going to make you reach for that one. Um, because you're not most people don't take the time to read. You know, they're just going to go, oh, shit, it's got a dog on it. It's red. And so they're going to they're going to take something like that home. Next question at the mic. So my question ties into the branding aspect because there's been a, lar- a large increase in the number of microbreweries in Sacramento in the last five to eight years. So how competitive, competitive is it to own, start, manage, and maintain a successful brewery? Uh, it's in 24-7, seven days a week. I've even you always... It's a lot of work. It is. I mean, I lost a marriage over it, and I'll tell you that. So, yeah, it's um, it takes you away. Even now that, yeah, I didn't realize it, but when you're doing stuff, you, even sitting at the dinner table with my kids, I, my mind would just go somewhere else, and I'd be I just because there's so much to do, and there's always something, and there's always somebody chasing your tail. 
So you always have to be the next, I don't want to say the next best thing, but you have to be ready for the next best thing. So you can't just rest on your laurels. I mean, look at all the new beers that Sierra Nevada is making. They're not just making their four core beers anymore. They have, you can look over there and they're making some amazing new beers because they understand that there's always somebody chasing, not saying we're chasing your tail, but we are. We're a small fish, um, but there's a lot of us now. So you have to set yourself apart, but you also have to pay attention to the market and realize that, you know, it just be on your game and make the best product that you can make. Oh, you, it must, uh, yeah, Mike. Yeah. But I'll ask, but I'll ask while you're there, uh, Steve, I mean, in terms of, cause it is like, I'm focusing on, on the, the brewing and the art of brewing, but it sounds like you also have to market and you, well, HR, but you have the, all the labs that you're working with. So it's not, brewing is part of the job, but it's not all of it. For both of you, it seems like it's, uh, it's Oh, definitely. You know, um, the, the brewing is, for me, of course, is the fun part. But more and more, you know, you get, and, and we embraced this uh, the last 10 years at Sierra Nevada, you know, the sales and marketing aspect. I mean, you can make the best beer ever, but you still have to get it out in front of the consumer and convince them why they should spend 6 or $7 for that six-pack. Um, so, you know, you really get into label design and verbiage and, you know, the artwork and everything. And... Um, you know, I'm, I do the liquid, so that that was that's my thing. Oh, did you have something else to add, Mike? Yeah, the, I mean, we're one of the last professions that get to from concept to in your hand. We get to have that all the way through. There's not somebody making trinkets, and we don't hand it off to some other manufacturing. We do every single step from ordering the raw ingredients to packaging them to marketing them so it's it's an amazing process but it, it's still a lot of work and i enjoy it but it's humbling when you get to finally put that glass in somebody's hand and they enjoy it and they want another one all right okay this was an audience question but i was told to bring it to the mic so we sat down about an hour ago and I've heard Sierra Nevada mentioned like a million times. Mike, I have not heard your brand of beer since we sat down. So could you tell me three times in a row, please? I swear I don't work for him. <laughs> so um, uh, Mraz Brewing Company up in El Dorado okay. Hills. Because I always wanted to say yeah. Mraz, but it's Mraz. M-O-R-A-Z? M-R-A-Z. M-R-A-Z. Mraz. Okay. Yeah, oh, that's, it's, it's over there. It's from it's the Czech Republic is my last name. It actually means frost. So I make actually make frost brewed beer. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd get sued for that from somebody. I can't remember who. No. <laughs> but Mraz Brewing Company up in El Dorado Hills. Okay, cool. Yep. Thank you. Raz. And then yeah, after, the, after the podcast, um, we do have a couple of raffle prizes, a Sierra Nevada, uh, the Geek Tour. And I was going to try and see if we got enough beer into Steve, if he would personally offer to, to take people around. But I won't push you. I'm not at liberty to do that. Oh, bummer. Yeah, That's yeah. too bad. But still, I got two tickets for that. And then um, Mike did bring an empty growler with a $20 gift certificate. So that will be after the podcast ends and the questions end. Stick around for the raffle. So. Whoever gets that tour, ask for Byron. 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 And I should mention, it's Fridays only. It's not weekends. So just keep that in mind. But apparently, it's worth it. It's it's. I hear nothing but awesome awesome stories about the all the brewery tours. Next question. Hi. Um, so one of my favorite things about meeting up with friends or going to a bar or 
sitting down with family and friends at a dinner table is having a beer and later down the road you're looking back and there's just that kind of beer that takes you back. So this might have already been answered before, but I wanted to know what kind of overall influence you want for the consumers who can look back on the memories that they've made over the years from youth to adulthood or as they get older from that. As far as going back and remembering the surrounding of the beer? Mm-hmm, or like that overall influence they have on the consumer. Well, I want them to have a good, I want them to have a happy experience. You know, uh, beer is fun, you know, um, and, you know, uh, having beers, you know, both being brewers and making a beer and having it, sharing it with your friends is one of the best things that you can do. And so beer in a social setting and beer with food or, or beer in a specific the special environment is all just lovely. And so if, you know, if you're having one of those beers and you're on the beach or you've just, you know, you had a great meal and you, you put all those things together in one context, uh, that's, a, that's a really nice thing. I hope we make beers that give you memorable experiences. Um, we've all had lackluster beers and they don't, you don't remember them. You could have not remembered what you had yesterday. Um, and hopefully that we make beer good enough that you want to put in your cooler, that you take somewhere to the beach or camping that you have those experiences with our product. That's amazing. Um, and hopefully some of the sours and some of the complex beers we do, do spark some of those ideas that like I, first time I had that beer, you know, it was so amazing and so different than anything I've ever had. Um, and you'll always remember that moment. And you know, I've had those with other beers and I hope people have those with mine. Oh, well, you, well, you guys do. It's a very good beer. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I had, and I had uh, two questions to wrap up the conversation. One ties into that about, uh, I guess your advice on pairing food with beer, especially, um, I guess the the barrel aged beers because you know there's so much talk about wine and wine and pairing with food. So if you have any quick suggestions about pairing uh, beers, your beers or just beers in general with food, do's and don'ts. Because I always wonder about that. If I'm drinking the right beer with the right food, or does it matter? Doesn't matter to me. Um, Pale ale just goes with no, everything. No, it's I. You know, there's there's certain foods. You know, if you're having a nice dark porter, you know, with uh, with some red meats. A lot of people like hoppy beers with very spicy food, like Thai food. Um, it's a lot of it's seasonal as well. You know, I really like a great Pilsner uh, in the summer, and so I'll have that with just about anything. Um, so uh, I think uh, I think you people can get caught up a little bit on too much structure in what they're wanting to enjoy. You know, so you, you know, don't feel bad if you're having some type of dish with a beer and then, you know, it's considered, you know, inappropriate. That's just, that's, that's inappropriate. Um, no, it should be, it should be about what you put together. So. Um, yeah, I mean, pale ale and pizza, you know, those are all good. Uh, I would say experiment. That's the best thing to do and try, you know, everybody's got a different palate and there's gotta be, there's a few books out there, cheese. A lot of the Belgian beers we do, match really well with cheeses, just like you do wine pairings with cheeses. I would, you know, that's a good place to start um, that, to kind of get your your palate into, you know, a little bit different thought I, process. I looked at your tap list, and the, I think the first one that caught my eye, it's on the top of your current list, is the mango, American Mango Sour. And I thought, that sounds great. I thought, what would I, would you pair it with anything particular? It goes by itself. Because um, the fruit beers, I guess, are ones that, 
they sound so cool and maybe they should be enjoyed by themselves or maybe there's certain cheeses or, or meats or whatever that they would pair well with to bring out the flavor. I was just curious if that is it makes a big difference or no, it doesn't. Um, some do work better. We just actually had a cheese pairing last night. Um, and some of the fruited sours work better with like a brie because they're creamy and soft and they don't have a lot of character themselves. But the carbonation and the fruit in the beer kind of cuts through it and matches really well. Um, you get like a aged cheddar or like a mimouette. Those work well with like an amber or, um, you know, a little bit darker of a sour. And you get like a Belgian triple or a golden strong works with like a... a Manchego or even just a, a white cheddar, you know, it all depends. You know, those are kind of my go-to ones that I do. Um, I blue cheese is tough. We did that last night. We did blue cheese, but we had a dark sour called Stellar Velocity, which is an aged um, dark saison with black currants and blackberries in Sangiovese barrels. So to kind of all those flavors, it literally tastes like a, a, a wine, like a Merlot. It's it's pretty crazy of a beer. Um, but we also gave the the tasters an IPA to go with it, so it was a 50-50. Some people like the sour, some people like the the hoppy beer. So it's everybody's got their own idea um, of what they what works. But definitely worth getting a few beers and a few different cheeses, or even a few different dishes, and see which ones you like. I guess my last question is is primarily for Steve, but. This, I guess, should apply to you, Mike, down the road. In terms of, uh, you told me you were at Sierra Nevada for 34 and a half years. Why Why did you retire before 35? What What made you decide this is the time to... Well, the timing was right. Okay. Um, 35 would have been nice, but uh, I didn't want to retire in January. The timing just worked out well for everybody. It worked out well for m myself and my family personally. It worked out well for Sierra Nevada as a company. They're going through. They were going through a lot of transitional things uh, within the company structure, and um, it's you know, I'm glad to have the six months off. <laughs> no regrets. The the timing was was perfect for me. And I I have to ask. Uh, you may notice that Steve is wearing a a medal on his uh, right lapel there. And can you explain the significance of that medal there? Uh, yes, um, I was awarded a knighthood in the International Order of the Hop uh, in August of this last year. And that's the reaction a lot of people get. It's actually, um, it's, uh, it's an organization from uh, the 14th century. And um, I'm the first and only U.S. brewmaster master ever to be awarded this knighthood in this organization. So it was, at the end of my career, um, it was one of the most prestigious and honored things I've ever gotten. I've gotten three or four years ago, I was awarded the Russell Shearer Award by the Brewers Association for Innovation and in Brewing, which is probably the highest award that you can get within the craft brewing industry. The fact that I got this award from an associated industry, from the hop industry, it had nothing to do with brewing, uh, but it was in recognition of my dedication and support for the hop industry and hops in general over three and a half decades. And I just, it's an honor for you to be here very much. Thank you for coming thank here. You. And uh, Mike, is this something you're going to be going for to International Order of the Hops? Uh, or <laughs> like when, do, when, how, how far do you want to go? Uh, when do you think you would think about 
retiring. Yeah, when it's or not it, fun or, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know when it's not going to be fun. I, I, I love what I do. I get to hang out with, you know, it's, I mean, how often I get to sit next to Steve and other amazing brewers and, and talk shop, you know, and, and we still share ideas. And I love that aspect of the beer industry. So I don't want to change that at this particular time in my life. Um, you know, things have changed, obviously, since we opened. Um, I work really hard, like 16 hour days, like four days a week. And the other three days I get to spend with my kids and go mountain biking and, and there's a scratch on my leg because I still go out and play. Um, but for the first few years, I didn't get to do that. I was literally 16 hour days, seven days a week and didn't get to do so to grow the company. But now it's blossoming and I have more employees and I can have some time, some me time and some work time, which is important. I think for anybody that, you know, works in small business that they definitely have to get away because if you don't, you lose that inspiration. There's, you know, you get stuck doing the same thing and you lose that creative, you know, the art side things. You just got to find your happy place. And that's for me, that's going out and hiking and biking. And just after GABF, I went out to the Rocky Mountain National Park to get away by myself. I drove 300 miles and went hiking and just because I can. And that's what I love about what we do is it lets you have opportunities to be able to do those things. Well, my congratulations on your uh, award. I look forward to drinking with friends being on tap. Let us know. And uh, congratulations, Steve, on a, a, a great career and a well-deserved retirement. Enjoy it. Well, Planning on it. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, thanks again to you all for coming. It's been a really, it's been a really fun discussion. Uh, and there is more beer. Please, I don't want to go home with all of that beer. So thanks again, everyone. <laughs> You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation was held on October 11, 2017 at Rafael Delgado Studios in downtown Sacramento. Thanks to our brewmasters, Steve Dressler and Mike Moraz for coming. Thanks also to Rafael Delgado for making space in his art-filled studio for us and the beer kegs. Shoutouts to Jennifer Jackson of the Red Museum, Lindsay Nelson of Pink Boot Society, and Lauren Zayner of Moraz Brewing Company for helping us to put this event together. A special thanks to the four people we profiled in our Icebreakers mini-podcasts, which are interviews we did with other groundbreakers in California's craft beer industry to showcase this brewmaster's event and the local beer scene in general. Those four people are Charlie Bamforth of UC Davis, J.E. Pano of Roostaller Beer, Glenn Phillips of Rubicon Brewing, and Kate Whelan of Sacramento Beer Week. Thanks, guys, for agreeing to be the guinea pigs for our brand new podcasting endeavor. You can listen to those Icebreaker podcasts as well at soundcloud.org forward slash California Groundbreakers. Many thanks to Caleb Clark, executive producer of the Icebreakers, for the technical magic he does for all of our live events and podcasts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.